Welcome to another episode of Breakaway from the Rat Race. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Fernando Angelucci. Uh, and Fernando is the founder of Impact Self Storage, uh, which syndicates self storage deals nationwide. Uh, Fernando also has an engineering background. So this allows him really to be to have a to approach real estate uh, investing with a keen analytical mindset. Fernando, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, so this is, uh, so I think I was reading in your profile that you, uh, prior to doing, getting involved in real estate, you worked at Dow Chemical. So I think this is a, this is a good starting point, I think, to kind of like, because you, uh, you, ha you had an engineering background, you worked at Dow Chemical, and then the, the track, the path was uh, laid right in front of you, and you decide to Turn, take a left turn or right turn and say, I'm going to do real estate. So tell us more about that mindset yes. shift. So to uh, let's back up a little bit. So uh, I'm uh, the son of two immigrants from Brazil. And so when they came to the United States, they had the old school American dream in mind, which was yeah. go to school, get good grades, go get a job with a pension and retire in 40 years. Right. When I was 16 years old, however, I was given the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And when I read that book, it changed my mind on how to approach money and how to think about money. So from there, I decided I wanted to go and be a business owner and be a real estate investor. But my father, he said, you can do that, but first you need to get your degree. And the degree needs to end in the word engineering. So that's what he did. Um, so I went to school, I got my engineering degree, but all throughout high school and college, I was reading all of the Rich Dad series books. I was reading multiple books from other authors talking about real estate. I started going to RIA meetings and, and meetups that were about real estate investing. So once I got out of college and I had my first job with Dow Chemical, I immediately started to take the, the salary that I had and invested into a single family business. So within six months of being in the nine to five world, I started buying and selling self, um, single family homes. Mm -hmm. And then from there around month 13, I was making about the same as my salary, just doing this on the weekends and after work, uh, pretty long hours, but I, I wanted to make sure I can get out as soon as possible. So once I was able to exit, that's when my real estate investing career really took off. So started with the single family and multifamily rentals. I did some fix and flips here and there, and then moved up to larger multifamily portfolios. And you read in all these books that, you know, go buy rental property and then it's passive income. But what I was finding that I was working 50, 60 hours a week on my quote, passive end quote income, right? It didn't feel very passive to me. So I started to look at what are the reasons why I'm spending so much time on this business? And it just came down to people. You know, if there's someone living in a property of yours, it is considered habitation real estate. And with habitation real estate, there is implied and expressed warranties of habitation. So, you know, yes, you can hire a third party manager to manage the properties. But if all of a sudden the heater goes out in the middle of winter in Chicago, that is an emergency that needs to be dealt with right now. You cannot wait till you know, Monday morning to deal with it because it can be negative 20, negative 30 degrees. So I started looking at other investment vehicles that can still benefit from leverage, like single family, multifamily homes that had the ability to bring in passive income or rental income. 
And that's when I stumbled upon self-storage. And what I found with self-storage compared to single family and multifamily is that the returns over the last 30 years have been higher. Uh, during recessions and pandemics, it's operated and performed extremely well compared to single family and multifamily homes. And because of that downside risk mitigation, the leverage that was available to us on these investments was much higher. With multifamily homes, you know, I, I would have to put 20, 25% down. With, sing, uh, with self-storage, I can get loans that are 10% down from the SBA and then from some, some bridge lenders as well. So that was really great. And then what we also noticed is that the, the physical management of self-storage was much easier. Even though there was more people per dollar of investment, typically those people aren't very needy. They don't need a lot. They typically show up to the facility two to three times in the lifetime of them being a customer. One to drop off their stuff, maybe one time in between to pick something up, and then once when they move out. So there wasn't a lot of interaction that was needed and that hence less management. And at the same time, because, you know, this is not habitation real estate, our break-even occupancies were much lower because we didn't have utilities. We didn't have um, a lot of turnover. And the nice thing about the turnover side is instead of having evictions like you would in the residential world, which right now during the pandemic, I know a lot of landlords that are suffering because the governments are saying that they cannot evict. With self-storage, we are not guided by tenant landlord law. We are guided by lien law or property law. So when somebody stores their, their possessions in our building, um, if they do not pay, then we auction off their goods. And within 30 days of them not paying, we have a new paying tenant in there. Um, so that has helped a lot in the, not only the management and the scaling of the business, but then also the ability to find and acquire new facilities because a lower piece of our time is focused on the management itself. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's very good. This is kind of like the, the whole line here. Uh, so, yeah. but uh, I, I think it's very, very interesting that you started in uh, in the single family rental. So I think a lot of people, this is kind of like a good starting point. Uh, to kind of like get your feet wet, get things uh, going, something that is very familiar to, uh, to a lot of people. You buy a house, you rent it out, and then you kind of, uh, you work your way up, up there. So that, and then multifamily. So this is very good kind of like track, I think for these, uh, for a lot of our listeners. I mean, that's what, that's what they're doing. That's what they're looking looking to do as well mm -hmm. um and um so that's that's one key point but it was taking sometimes for you like so even if so were you self-managing these uh, these properties these single family rentals yeah in the beginning i was self-managing but then once yeah. my portfolio got to a large enough size i hired a third-party manager but even yeah. then you still have to manage the manager yeah right yeah so it's, yes that's true but uh yeah so I, but at the beginning when the first property that i bought i was also self-managing and it was uh it was very painful <laughs> very painful <laughs> and um yeah but later on like i learned from that that uh that property that i do not ever want to manage a property again and uh no matter how small and um so yeah, so that's that's kind of where and yeah, there's a little bit of uh, hand holding with uh, with some of the properties that we have. Obviously, there's things that break down, but it's pretty limited to uh, kind of approving some things that goes above the, uh, go above the threshold. Uh, 
and you know so like a furnace breaking up or hvac or something like that you know yeah you have to approve because it's going to cost more than 500 dollars, for example okay. uh, but for the most part i mean it's been if you look at your owner statement you look at your check coming in it's been pretty uh it's been pretty easy so far for uh for a lot of our customers the people that buy turnkey rentals from us um so but this is very so the self-storage space uh this is something that i was also very interested in so i'm glad that you are here to tell us kind of like how do we get started in this is this is something that uh, you want to do uh that i want to do uh i didn't even know that you could do uh 10 down on for these uh to buy these property or set them up um so this is great um, so how do we get started? What's the first thing that we do that we need to do if we want to get started in self-storage? Yeah, so I think there's two tracks here. There's the active investor track and then there's the passive investor track. So I'll talk about both. You know, obviously on the passive investor track, you invest in a sponsor or in a syndication and that syndication will pay you over time, not only in cash flow, but then in equity growth as well. And then it also comes with a lot of uh, great tax advantages. The reason a lot of investors invest in our self-storage syndications is because typically for every dollar they invest, they get $2 back in depreciation. So our high net worth earners are really, um, really big fans of the self-storage space. And the reason for that is because of cost segregation, what, which is typically not very feasible to do on single family homes, just because the sheer cost, it's usually 4,500 to $6,000 per cost segregation study, but it can save you a lot of money. So for example, one of the very first properties I bought was a self-storage facility in central Illinois. I purchased that for $800,000 and I paid $6,000 for a cost segregation study. And in the first year, I was able to write off $160,000 in depreciation, just to kind of show you the scale um, that we're able to get. Now, on the active side, it's very similar to what your listeners do when they're finding and sourcing single family homes. We did the exact same thing. All of the, the letters that we were writing to the single family home owners, we just changed the format slightly and started selling, sending it to self-storage owners. And what we found was the response rates were three to four times as high as oh, really? the single family market. Now, some of the people that I've talked to, they say, okay, well, you know, I hear about self-storage all the time now. It must be a very fragmented market. There might, you know, there may not be as many facilities as our single family homes. And that's true. You know, there's only about 70 to 72,000 self-storage facilities in the United States. But the thing that I really like about this space is that it's extremely fragmented. So the, the top six operators, the largest REITs, you see their names everywhere, public storage, cube smart, extra space, they own about 18 to 19% of the inventory in the United States. Then the next largest 100 operators, which I'm a part of that group, they only own the next 9% of inventory in the wow. United States. So that means that there's 72 to 70% of the facilities in the United States are owned by what we call mom and pop owners. They usually own one or maybe two self-storage facilities. They're not yeah. operating them like a real business. There's a lot of management inefficiencies, and it's very easy to come in, turn around just from very basic things like do some marketing, get the you know get a, a website, get it listed on Google Business so it shows up on Google Maps, and very quickly we can double the income that the property brings in within nine to eighteen months. Mm -hmm. 
Wow, that's so that's uh, what I'd say to get started. It's you know first you got to find them. I usually tell people do not go the broker route. If you go by retail, the cap rates right now are extremely low. You're seeing mm -hmm. brokers send out deals at four and a half, five percent cap rate, maybe a pro wow. forma up to six and a half percent, and that just if for that type of return, you might as well just put your money in the stock market and it'll be truly passive, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the key is to go off market to find these facilities. And once you start to get your marketing in place, then you have to start putting together the financing structure. So yes, self-storage facilities are a little bit more expensive than single family homes, but in some cases they're not. So for example, I know that you have a lot of listeners on the West Coast, California, those types of areas where you know, a two bedroom, one bath house can be a million dollars. Well, I can buy a, a self-storage facility for a million dollars and put a hundred thousand dollars down. Now say that's even too much. You know, we wholesale a lot of self-storage facilities as well, the ones that are too small for us. And mm -hmm. we come across facilities as low as a $100,000 purchase price, all the way up to maybe like a five hundred to $600,000 purchase price. They're smaller facilities, but these are the perfect types of facilities to get your feet wet, to learn on. You know, if you study the industry and study self-storage as an investment, that you're maybe going to get 20 to 25% of the knowledge you need to know to actually operate them. And the other 80% come from actually operating it on a day-to-day yeah. -day basis. <laughs> and that's how, you know, that's how you learn. It's kind of trial mm -hmm. by fire. But yeah. the nice thing about self-storage is because the break-even occupancies are so low, there's a lot of margin for error where you can mess up everything and still be cash flow positive while you're learning the industry. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned a couple of things. Uh, one of them was the uh, the cost aggregation. So this is uh, to basically de accelerating depreciation on the building, uh, especially with uh, you know the uh, the last changes with the bonus depreciation and all of that. So that this is a, a strategy that we use quite often on multifamily uh, apartments as well. So you know, so obviously it also applies to uh, self storage uh, facilities. So. This is this is fantastic. Uh, if somebody wants to uh, have some depreciation, they have extra money, uh, they don't want to pay taxes. Buying a self storage facility or a multifamily uh, apartment, doing bonus depreciation, which is really going to cut down on your um, on your taxes uh, for the year. Of course. I'm not a CPA and everybody's situation is different, blah, 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 you know? So talk to your CPA to make sure that this strategy would actually reduce your taxes because there's also a difference between active income and passive income and make sure that this fits into the right, uh, the right bucket. So, so that's, that's one thing. So this is all, always a good strategy in real estate in general. I mean, tax, tax advantages is, is fantastic. Um, so, so how do we, so, everybody knows kind of like uh it's easy to get a list i, I want to get markets uh, properties off uh, off market it's easy to get a list of uh, of single family homes and then send the mailing uh, all of that but where do you get your list for uh for self-storage exactly so we, we do the same thing we buy a list and we mail it to them so the only difference is with single family homes where they have kind of these out of the box product where you can go to a listsource.com and look what you're, you know, scrub what you're looking for and get a list right like that. Typically with self-storage, you have to go one step further and you actually have to contact a list broker, a list provider and work with a, with a client agent one-on-one. -on -one. So okay. I use a company out uh, based out of Chicago here called Exact Data. 
Okay. And I work, my rep, his name is Amir. And if any of your listeners would like to reach out to me, I can connect okay. them with Amir. And he will create a custom list for you based on what he's pulled for me and what geographies you're looking for to get those, those sellers. So one of the things that we're always looking to do is we don't want to approach the people that are never going to sell to us at the prices that we want anyway. Yeah. So that's typically going to be your top REITs, your top 100 operators, your top 50 management companies. So what we'll do is we'll tell Amir over at Exact Data, we'll say, hey, Amir, I want every self-storage facility. And usually the easiest way to find them is based off of land classification codes. So there's mm -hmm. the SIC codes, and then there's yeah. the newer NAICS codes. Yeah. So we like to use the, uh, the newer NAICS codes and every once in a while, we'll also pull some SIC codes to kind of augment a list. And then we'll ask Amir to scrub out the top 100 operators, which is posted every year on the major uh, publication, the trade publication websites like InsideSelfStorage.com or the Self Storage Association as well. Mm -hmm. They post a list. And then we'll also ask him to scrub out the top 50 third-party management companies because typically those third-party management companies, if they're managing the facility and all of a sudden they get a letter for the seller that they're managing for, they'd say, hey, we'd rather buy it from you at a better price than allowing you to sell it to, say, Fernando. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So once we get that list, then we will skip trace it. So we'll put it through a skip tracing software. It'll give us the you know, five most recent phone numbers, five most recent email addresses. And then we'll kind of hit them from a multi-pronged approach. We'll send letters to not only the facility itself, um, but we'll also, if we can find these owner's contact information, we'll send it to the owner's mailing address. So sometimes the owners will have their tax bills sent to their house as opposed to the facility itself. And that's mm -hmm. an easy way to find them. Mm -hmm. Half of the time with these small facilities that you're looking to purchase, the owner is the one sitting behind the counter. He doesn't or she doesn't have a manager. They're usually operating it themselves. So you can just by calling the facility, if it's listed online with a phone number, you can get a hold of them. But if mm -hmm. not, and though the ones that are not listed online are the ones we like to buy because they're heavier value add, we can force a lot of appreciation that's when we'll have our sales reps actually cold calling the numbers that we found on the skip tracing or sending emails to the emails we found on the skip tracing software mm -hmm. wow this is very good so which uh, are you looking at specific market i know you're from chicago uh, and by the way i was in chicago last week yeah it's a phenomenal city i mean i think we're we're thinking of spending some time some more time there that's for sure uh, next time we, you come give me a call i have a, a few apartments i could put you up in right in the middle of downtown oh wow well okay well i, I might take you up on that offer sure <laughs> <laughs> uh the um so yeah so this is uh you know great market but what about self-storage market is there a, so if we go back to the the typical uh single family rental multifamily rental we the number one criteria for us is landlord friendly state and as you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the program is that this doesn't doesn't really apply here the, the laws that are governing self-storage are not tenant landlord relationship right so this is so now it sounds to me like you know the whole country is open to uh, your investment but still, is there any other criteria? What are the next criteria, next level of criteria to choose the right market for a self-storage facility? Absolutely. So you, you hit the nail on the head there. So self-storage, the laws in almost every one of the states are written completely in the favor of the owner. All the liabilities put on the tenant, 
If they don't have renter's insurance and something happens to the facility, the owner is not liable. If they do not pay, we can auction off their goods within 30 days, don't have to go through the eviction process. So most of the states in the United States are extremely favorable towards the owners of self-storage facilities. So then it comes down to a function of income and expenses. So because self-storage does not have a lot of operating expenses, the largest ones are property taxes and labor. So typically we're looking for states that have low property taxes and low labor costs. So unfortunately for the listeners there on the West Coast, we stay out of California as much as possible. Um, extremely expensive on the property taxes, extremely yeah. expensive for the labor costs. But other than that, we're looking at markets, like you said, that are not only favorable to us from the laws, but then also from the income and expense standpoint. So we, what we really like is the Midwest, the South and the Southwest, you know, Texas, yeah. Arizona, New Mexico. Yeah. I like the Southeast, you know, uh, Alabama, Louisiana, Florida, those types of areas. And then just recently, we started expanding into the Northeast because of the solar credits. Because self-storage has a lot of roof space, we're able to double our income by putting storage on top of the buildings and wow. augmenting not only our expenses, but in some states, even selling back power to the grid. But what is really good is the, the tax credits that come along with installing solar on top of one of your facilities. Wow. So that's primarily our, 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 our main reach right now is the Midwest, the Southwest, the Southeast, and then a little bit of the Northeast, as long as it's in one of the states that have really advantageous solar programs. Yeah. But other than that, we look at, you know, we, we have such a large pipeline of deals. We spend almost $150,000 a year just on the marketing to off-market sellers. Uh, um, so we get deals all over the United States and it just comes down to the, if the numbers work, right? I, I have bought properties in high tax states like Illinois, but that's because I was buying them at a 10 or 11% cap rate. So it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. if the taxes are high because I'm already walking into a lot of cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's fantastic. Uh, the, um, let's see here. Uh, so yeah, so this is, I can see like, Fernando, like when uh, when we talked earlier about your analytical mind, so I can see how how this is working out for you here, and you you really described kind of like the two key components of expenses and all of that, and then kind of like what why you're selecting certain markets. So this is very good. Um, and then right, what so I'll say about yeah. the markets is that so you have macro markets, right? Which yeah. states do I want to go into? But self-storage is such a hyper-localized investment. And what I mean by that is typically in a self-storage facility, you're going to pull 70 to 90% of your client base, your tenant base from a three to a five mile radius. Wow. So I can't even make statements like Chicago is saturated or Chicago needs storage. What I have to say is this one five mile section needs yeah. storage is oversaturated, right? So because of that, then we start looking at macro market economics. And the, the, the things that we're going to be looking for are going to be things like, what are the population growth? What is the job growth? Just like in multifamily and single family. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then in addition to that, we'll look at what's called the supply index number. And the supply index number is the, it's a ratio of the total amount of self-storage square footage in that trade area that you've defined, let's say five miles around your facility, divided yeah. by the population in that trade area. 
And if it's above or below a certain number, then we know it's a go or a no go. So for example, okay. if it's below seven square feet per person, I know it's probably a good deal to buy if it's existing, but maybe not an area that I want to build a large ground up development in. If I want to build mm -hmm. large ground up development and then I'm going to start looking at markets that have supply indexes in the three or four square feet per person in that trade area. Okay. 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 And you call, you call this index storage index? What is uh, it? Supply the, index. The supply index. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. And this, is this something that you came up with or is it something that is pretty uh, well known in the industry and. Yeah, it's, it's, it's well known in the industry. But you got to make sure that you aren't just using that number. That's just yeah. one factor to look at because you can be in markets that are high growth, like let's say central and southern Florida, where you may have an extremely high supply index because there's been a bunch of development that has been done, but there's so many people moving into the area on a weekly basis that it doesn't really matter. So what I'll do is I'll usually take supply index and give it maybe a 50 or a 40% weighting. And mm -hmm. then the other weighting that I use is I look actually at competitors. So I'll look at competitors in the area. And if all the competitors are considered stabilized or above, which in self-storage is 90% occupancy or above, then I know this is an area that has pent up demand regardless of what the supply index is and vice versa. Maybe I go into an area where the supply index is three. So you'd say, wow, that's a good area. It's, it's, there's no demand. But then when you look at all the self-storage facilities in the area, they're all at 50% occupancy. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah. The, you have to kind of weight both of them and use them together to have a full picture of, of the demand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you can't, there's no statistics available on the occupancy. Is there for the storage facilities? You have to kind of there assume isn't. that. There is. So what we do is we, we secret shop them. So we kind of have a multi-pronged approach. The first is we'll just call them. Yeah. And we'll say, hey, you know, we're a, we're a moving company or I'm a potential client. I'm just trying to see how much space you have available. I have a lot of stuff and see if you can get the number out that way. And I'll know right off the bat if they're over 90% because they'll say, yeah, we really don't have that many units. I have maybe one or two available for you, but they're odd sizes. Sometimes the managers, the ones that are tr not trained to give away this information, like our managers are, they'll just, they'll just tell us right away, oh, we're you know, 72% occupied. Here's all the types of units that are full. Here are the units that people don't like. We can get a lot of competitor data. Now, uh -huh. if we get someone on the phone that is sim that is trained like our managers are, where they know not to give away this information because it could be a potential competitor that wants to move into the market, then what we do is we go one step further and we'll actually go to the facility and pretend to be a customer or actually pay for one month of storage just so I can get inside the facility and mm -hmm. walk every one of the doors and see how many of the doors have a manager lock on it because yeah. it's empty or it has a, a user's lock on it. So then I could count occupancy that way. Oh, wow. Wow. Sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> we call it secret shopping. <laughs> uh, wow. This is a, this is fantastic. Um, so, um, all right. So now we've done, we've done our homework. We looked at, okay, well, we're going to go in the Midwest. We looked at the specific city. We looked at a specific neighborhood. We have our supply index. We looked at our competitors and then we say, okay, well, this is, this facility is, uh, is available that I've talked to the owner, etc. So now how do I, how, so in single family and multifamily, in single family, it's, 
you know, the, the comparables, you use the comparables to figure out kind of like how much I can offer. Uh, and you kind of, uh, you know, work, work your numbers that way. And you kind of look at how much rehab is, is needed and all that. Multifamily, you would look at the cap rate um, and, you know, kind of like look at industry average and try to figure out that way. Um, but in, uh, in storage, so how do you kind of like look at that? How do you, you evaluate the, uh, the value of that property? Absolutely. So there's, there's two things that we look at. And just like multifamily, self-storage is an income-based asset. So it trades based off of cap rates, not off of comparables. Mm -hmm. So that's the very first thing that we're going to be thinking in our head. But you also have to look at where is the facility now and where can it be? So, you, you know, someone say, well, all right, Fernando, you only buy high cap rate deals. I say, that's not necessarily true. I may buy a 4% cap rate deal, knowing that in nine to 12 months, I can get it to 10 or 11 or 12%. So what I'm always looking for is value add facilities. I'm not going to buy anything that's stabilized. And what I always tell people for their first self-storage facility, buy something that's very light value add, something that's going to be easy for you to learn and cut your teeth on, buy something that maybe it's 90% occupancy or above. You can increase rent slightly or decrease expenses slightly. But once you get that under your belt, then you can start doing more aggressive lease ups like I do. So I can go into a facility and I can see that the red flags for owners that I see as money are things such as I cannot find your, your facility online. I can't find it on Google Maps. I can't find a website for it. So that alone, I can usually increase the occupancy by 30 to 60% just by putting it online. The old adage for self-storage used to be, you need to be able to see it. And people, the metric people would use is how many cars per day pass yeah. the curb cut <laughs> to your facility, right? You want yeah. a minimum of 12,000 all the way up to 24,000 cars per day pass in your facility. But now because of the internet, 60% of our, our customers, they find us first on a cell phone, not even on a computer, oh, on wow. a cell phone. So you may have a website, but if the website is not mobile optimized, you're going to lose yeah. a lot of customers that potentially want to come in and rent your facility. So that's yeah. number one. Yeah. Number two is I'll look for facilities that it, it was clear that the owner was not keeping up with the market. They weren't doing market research. They weren't seeing what their competitors were offering. So all of a sudden you have an owner here that is charging $50 a month for a 10 by 10 unit when all his competitors are charging $100 a month. So right off the bat, the second I buy it, I send out a letter to all the tenants saying, hey, all the competitors that are 100 bucks a month for this unit, I'm going to raise you from 50 to 95 it's going to be a little bit of a sticker shock, but I'm still going to be cheaper than everybody else in town. So you, there's no reason for you to move, right? Yeah. The other Again, things I'll look at. No, go ahead. no tenant protection. So it's right. This is the market rate, and then you just basically at the end of the at the end of the lease. Normally, you have a contract with them, and at the end of the contract, you would just say, "Hey, you know, we we raise the rent to whatever we want." Right. And with storage, all of the leases are month to month leases. Okay. And one of the nice things about storage law is when I send out a new rent increase and a new lease, if I want to change any of the verbiage, because typically the sellers I'm buying from their leases are one or two pages, they don't protect them. And ours are much longer, maybe seven or eight pages with a bunch of clauses and, you know, just to cover ourselves. The, the interesting thing about self-storage is when I send you a new lease, you have 30 days to either accept it or move out. If you do not do one of those two things, 
it automatically goes into force. So oh, wow. it, even if you say, I don't agree to this rent increase and blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, well, next month, if you don't pay me the rent that is on the new lease, even if you didn't sign it, I'm going to auction off your possessions. So you have the option of either moving out by the end of the month or starting to pay the new rate. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So a lot of protections. The other yeah. things that we'll look at is, again, so we talked about raising income, right? So that's yep. one half of the equation. Now let's talk about reducing expenses. So what we've noticed with self-storage owners is that Number one, their property taxes are typically higher than they need to be. Um, Self-storage is a relatively new asset class compared to, you know, single-family homes have been around for hundreds of years. Multifamily yeah. homes have been around for hundreds of years, basically since steel has been invented, right? Yeah. Self-storage really only started to catch steam like in the, you know, it, the first one started showing up in the 60s and 70s, but when it, they actually started really being built across the United States was the early to mid 80s. So very new. And because of that, municipalities don't really know how to assess them from a property tax standpoint. So when you yeah. ask the assessor, what is the basket of goods or the other properties that you are saying that mine is closely related to, you'll start finding things like medical office building or class A office building. And that's not the same mill rate, yeah, right? Yeah, you don't have yeah. the same traffic impacts onto the roads. We don't cause the same amount of disruption. Um, so our taxes should be lower. So the very first thing we do is, is a two-pronged approach. One piece is before purchase, we'll actually ask the seller if we can split the purchase price. Because self-storage is a very interesting real estate asset in that it's also a business it's as well. And that's why we're able to qualify for SBA loans, which are, can be as low as 10% down, the Small Business mm -hmm. Administration. So what we'll do is we say, okay, I'm going to buy a facility for a million dollars. But instead of giving you a real estate purchase contract that says a million dollars, I'm going to give you two purchase contracts. One is for the land and the improvements thereon or the real estate contract. I'll, get, I'll put 600000 on that one. And that number is what the property tax assessor uses to put your property taxes. But then I'll, I'll put a second purchase agreement for the business and the business assets and the goodwill. And that will be for 400,000. And that the assessor cannot tax because that yeah. is not a part of the land or the improvement. So that's strategy number one to lowering property taxes. The second one, as I alluded to before, is to then immediately hire the most connected property tax attorney you have in that county and have them go to the county and fight your property taxes immediately, contest them. And typically um, we've experienced a 25 to a 35% decrease in property taxes just by having an attorney go talk to the county to lower oh. our tax rate. Yeah. Another piece that we find is that these self-storage owners, they don't run it as typically their primary business. This is not what they focus on. They don't go to all these self-storage trade shows and work with self-storage specific vendors. So what they'll do on the insurance piece, the property insurance is they'll call their, you know, their Jake from State Farm that did their house and their car and then ask him to do the self-storage facility when that guy has no idea how much little liability the owner has. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden his premium will be through the roof. And what we found mm -hmm. is when we go to a specific self-storage insurance provider, our yep. property insurance get cuts in half because with self-storage, all the liabilities on the tenant, they need to have renter's insurance to put their possessions in our unit. And it, that means that there's less claims from the owner itself. So our premium yeah. goes much lower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Wow. So those are oh, the two largest ones that we'll do yeah. immediately. And then yeah. the last one is always looking at labor. How can we use technology 
so that we can remove, you know, a full-time manager or maybe a, a full-time manager and a part-time manager. We can get that yeah. reduced to either a part-time manager or no manager at all using technology, using these little kiosk systems that people can actually rent their units. It looks like an ATM. They can rent it right from outside the facility. They can call through their phone through a call center and rent online. They can rent from the website. And that eliminates the need for that labor cost, which, as I said before, is the second largest cost you have in self-storage behind property yeah. taxes. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Well, lots of information. I'm sure a lot of our <laughs> listeners are going to listen to this, listen to this over and over. Okay, now what do I do? What do I do? So this is, this is full, of, full of information. So thank you very much uh, with that. Now, the next thing is kind of like is getting the, the loan the, uh, from uh, basically the, uh, you mentioned the SBA loan, but so how, how do we package this? So we have uh, like a purchase agreement from the real estate. We have a purchase agreement for the business piece of it. Uh, how do we go about getting uh, funding for uh, for the from the bank from the SBA etc. Yeah, so there's there's three main or four main lenders that we'll look at, and depending on how many documents we have or how severe the value add is, we'll decide who to choose. So in the very beginning, we're going to work with the hardest core lenders, which is your hard money lenders, right? This is for properties that don't have any bank statements, they don't have any tax returns, typically the owner's operating it in cash and pocketing all the cash, not reporting his income. Your typical SBA lender and your typical bank lender are not going to lend on that facility because they need two to three years of tax returns from the seller to substantiate how much income they're claiming they're bringing in, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to go with a hard money lender, which is going to be anywhere between 10 to 12% interest, interest only and one to two points, just like in single family and multifamily. And we're going to use them for as short a period of time as possible to get the history that we need to then go yeah. to a bank and refinance. Mm -hmm. okay. The next level up is going to be your bank financing. So with the hard money, you can typically expect, you know, anywhere between 75 to 90% leverage, depending on how much experience you have and which lenders you're going with. Once you go to the bank, you're pretty much always going to be floating between 75 and 85% leverage. So 15 to 25% down. If a bank asks you to bring more than that, that means that they don't understand the asset class. They don't understand how safe it is. And that is not the bank you should be working with. And I actually have some statistics on why this is. Self-storage has had over the last 30 years, the lowest default rate of any asset class to the lender. So for example, when multifamily is defaulting, typically anywhere between 1.8 to 2.3%, self-storage is defaulting anywhere from 0.04% to 0.14%. So wow. almost 40 times lower default rate. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that if in the rare chance that there is a default, the loss per default is extremely lower. So for example, say for some reason, a self-storage facility does have to go on the auction block. The loss experience to the lender is typically about 0.86% on average or all the way up to a high of about 1.5% on average. Whereas let's say with single family or multifamily, where the loss is typically anywhere between three and a half to seven and a half percent loss per default for the lender. So because of this, this history, Banks know that they want more of these loans to balance out their portfolio as a low risk option and will give better leverage in order to get those loans. So if you, if you get a bank, which has happened to me, where you bring your entire 
you know, slide deck and everything you need. And all of a sudden they say, this is great. You know, we want 50% down. They don't, they've never lent on self-storage or they've maybe done one or two, but they don't really understand the asset class. Yeah, so with yeah. banks, you're typically looking at 15 to 25% down. Mm -hmm. Some banks will take less financials from the seller, as long as there's a way that they can prove it. For example, you show them all the signed leases, you show them a profit and loss signed by, let's say the seller's CPA, if they don't have tax returns. Yeah. And those rates are going to be in as low as 4% interest on a five-year balloon, 20 to 25-year amortization to as high as five and three quarters percent interest on a five-year to maybe a 25-year amortization, five-year balloon. Oh, yeah. So that's yeah. going to be the banks. The next one up is if you, the seller has all the documents that you need, they have three years of tax returns and the tax returns match the P&Ls. So they're not playing some games and trying to write off more income than, than they really have. With that, then you can go to the SBA, but you got to remember the SBA, those small business administration loans is just like getting an FHA loan. It's like as full doc as you can get, they're going to want to know your blood type. They're going to want the naming rights for your firstborn kid. You know, I mean, really, they're going to want everything under the moon. If you have a seller like that, your best bet is to go with the SBA because typically those loans are going to fall in the three and a half to four and a half percent rate, but they will be 25 year fully amortized loans. So no balloon. Okay. Oh, wow. So really great leverage. And then once you use all that, and you can start building up portfolios of stabilized properties, then going to the final lenders where you're going to really make a lot of passive income. And that's going to the commercial mortgage-backed securities markets or the CMBS markets. Basically, what a CMBS loan is, is there'll be a lender like Morgan Stanley. They'll make a billion dollars of self-storage loans. They'll wrap it into a product and they'll sell that product on the open stock market for stock investors to invest in. So those deals are very, those types of loans are extremely good for self-storage only if one, you've already created as much value as you can because you're locked into these loans. And the reason for that is be, they're basically selling fixed income to the stock market. So if you want to get out early, let's say in your 10-year period, you want to get out in year five, you're still going to have to basically pay the 10 years of interest anyway. So the prepayment yeah. penalties are very heavy. But yeah. for that, you can start getting 10-year balloons with a 30 or 35-year amortization. And some lenders now are even going up to 40-year amortization. So your cash flow is through the roof. And again, wow. that's because the default rate historically for self-storage has been better than any other real estate asset class. Wow. Wow. And those are going to be anywhere in the 2.65% interest rate up to about 4.5% as of today. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, Fernando, you're, you're a wealth of knowledge. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, anything else? We, so we, you know, we're out of time. Um, anything else you want to uh, talk about before we kind of uh, wrap it up? And obviously in the show notes, we're going to put anything you want about kind of like where they can reach you, etc. But Yeah. So what I always tell people is what if the things I'm telling you right now on the active side are sound like too much or Maybe you have a full-time job or career that you're dedicated to, and you don't have the time or expertise to go after the active side. There's a lot of opportunity on the passive side where you can be a limited partner in a syndication 
typically these syndications will pay anywhere between 15 to 25% return, depending on what type of deal it is. If it's a cash flow property, if it's a ground up development property. So if, if, if you want to get involved in self storage, but the active side is not right for you, go look for some very good sponsors that have experience, that have a good track record that you can invest in, not only to get the cash flow and the equity growth, but also to get the depreciation, the amortization, all of those things. Yeah. And I think it's pretty clear from our discussions that, uh, you know, that it is, it is, there's some complexity there. There's a definitely, uh, it's a little bit different than multifamily. Uh, it's close enough, but there's some specific uh, kind of uh, knowledge and skills that you need to have for that. And the other thing I think you've demonstrated is that you really know your business and that uh, yeah. you are uh, you are a syndicator of self-storage facilities. So, yeah, so, uh, so if some of our listeners are interested, I think they should definitely go and reach out to you and uh, and talk to you and learn more about how they can invest invest with you. Yeah, and it's very easy to find us. Just go to impactselfstorage.com and there'll be a form there where you can get in touch. Sounds good. Well, Fernando, uh, it was an amazing uh, conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time and sharing your knowledge with us. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Break Away from the Rat Race with your host, Eric Martel. If you want to share your story and experience with our listeners, please message us on Facebook at Break Away from the Rat Race. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast on iTunes.